Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April 9th, 2015. This is episode 1553 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got a great one for you today. Uh, I've actually tagged it, though I haven't titled it. I tagged it as the Woman of, Women of Prepping uh, episode, because we do have a gal coming on, and I, I just think it will fit good in with that tag. Uh, so if you've never heard that series that I did about a year and a half ago, and you go to today's episode and you want to hear more from Great Women of Prepping, you can see that tag at the bottom of the post and click on it. It'll pull, pull up all the posts that are tagged that way. A little tidbit there. I don't think I've ever talked about that on the air, but you know we use a blog to syndicate the podcast, and at the end of every podcast are tags, and those tags will bring up similar shows on similar topics if you're interested in them. So little tidbit there on using the site. Anyway, before I bring on our guest today named Jill Elizabeth to talk about, well, frankly, Teotihuacan, the end of the world as we know it, for an individual. That happened to her about four years ago, and it's led to an incredible journey she's going to share with you today. And a person who's been through some trials, but frankly, seems to be a lot happier. A lot to learn today from a great person. Before I bring her on, let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. You want to be tactical? Get over to Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, you'll find Sawtooth uh, called that because they're nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, great company, great service, great pricing, and the coolest tactical stuff you'll find anywhere under the sun. Check them out today at sawtac.com. Next up, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point, click, and buy on their website. From guns to gardens, from practical to tactical, and everything in between, you'll find it all at readymaderesources.com. Next up today, want to uh, go over the year of the episode with you. I have a queen for a day, actually nine days, and I have all the gold that you can drink. That's the one I'm going to read because I think there's something to be learned uh, from Alex Shrug's take and then changed a little bit. Anyway, Governor of Chile, Pedro de Valdeveja, Veja, something like that, has been conquering what is the northern part of Chile and Argentina all the way to the Biobio River. Then he hit a brick wall called the Mapuche Indians. Years ago, the Spaniards had come south and mowed them down without much of a problem, but they've learned their lesson. The governor's young page named Lotoro is a Machu Picchu Indian who has learned Spanish and studied the tactics of the Spaniards. A couple of years ago, he slipped away to organize his fellow Indians and oppose the Spaniards. As the governor makes his way into a new town of Tucapal, he notices that the progress is too easy. He sends out scouts who do not return. I'm going to pause. That means go back. When your scouts don't come back, turn around and go back. He doesn't do it. Here's what happens. Uh, when he reaches Tucapal, he finds a smoking ruin. His troops make a stand as wave after wave of Indians attack. Exactly how Governor Pedro Valdivia dies is in dispute. But one account suggests that during the victory party, the Machapu Indians offered him all the gold he could drink and poured a bucket of molten gold down his throat. The Mapuche uh, will not be reigned until 1800s and will remain an occasional disruptive force all the way up into the modern day. 
My take by Alex shrugged, although there was not a lot of gold, the agricultural potential in Chile and Argentina was remarkable, but it was taken a lot of careful planning to work, ex to work exploit them. Uh, the conquistadors were not farmers nor ranchers. They were soldiers and generally low-level aristocrats called uh, Hidalgos. I thought it was Hildalgos. Anyway. Anyway, the, these land, landless nobles were forever trying to improve their position as quickly as possible. No one likes to be conquered, but the Spaniards could have shown the Indians how to plant crops that were saleable in Europe, taken a percentage off the top, and been done with it. But the only way the Spaniards had known was to demand things the serfs would produce what was needed. As oppressive as the system sounds, it had worked for, for them for hundreds of years, Unfortunately, the Indians didn't know that system, so they had to be taught. It was a slow and angry process that was not entirely successful. I have a bunch of stuff here. So first of all, it is ironic, isn't it, that the people that settled South America focused on more of a mining operation. What gold could we take? What silver could we take? And it, it was profitable, but only as long as the silver and the gold flowed. And today, there's not a nation in South America that you would look to and say is a true world-leading nation. But the people that settled North America largely immediately began to go into agricultural cropping and farmed. And there was mining, of course, but it, a lot of it came later after, first we're going to be able to feed ourselves, then we're going to make some money from what we're growing, then we're going to mine. So that model seemed to work better, almost like farming is a better occupation than mining, and maybe... Horticulture is a better occupation than agriculture because agriculture is a form of mining for food because it takes more than it replenishes. Anyway, so that's one thought. Now, the next thing is I've often said the tactic is the weapon, right? So it wasn't so much so in history that the victor in a war had better technology but better tactics that often the side with uh, equal technology but, but didn't really understand how to employ the technology would lose. Or sometimes even uh, a technology would be considered superior, but superior tactics would still win the, the day. And that can be seen from wars all the way back into antiquity and, and recent wars as well. Um, there's no doubt the United States had superior technology in Vietnam. But whether we want to admit it or not, we lost that war. We absolutely did, because the, the enemy had a superior set of tactics. So there's, there's a lesson there. But it's also that the tactic is transferable. So the, the Spanish came in and just laid waste to these Indians. The Indians had superior numbers, and the Spanish really didn't have much superior stuff going on with weaponry. Not really. Not enough to make up for the, 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 the numbers But the, the natives didn't understand the Spanish tactics, and the Spanish were drilled in a warfare style that utilized the technology they have to the fullest level. All it took was one guy that understood that to go tell his buddies what was going on, and next thing you know, some dude's drinking a, a mug of molten gold, and that doesn't do a lot for your health. <laughs> all right. So there's, all, there's also the fact that the tactic can be transferable. And lastly, a people conquered are in some ways happy to be conquered once, once it's done. In other words, the system worked perfectly in Europe where everybody was already beaten down. 
But you try to conquer a people that doesn't want to be conquered. You try to conquer a people that knows what freedom is. You try to conquer people that are not the bird in the cage that won't leave when you open the door. You might have a fight on your hands. Maybe it's time that more of us walked out of the cage, understood what was on the other side of the damn thing, understood what liberty is, and put up a damn fight for our rights. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, I want to remind you before I bring our special guest on uh, that you can help support the show, I, the show and the work I do here by joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. If you are active duty or prior service, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, or First Responder like EMT, Paramedic, Firefighter, all of you qualify for a discount. Email me before, not after you join. TSPC service discount. The subject line, send it to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and I will get back to you with a discount code to save you even more money on an already great product. Everybody else, just click on Members, learn more about it. I'll tell you what, I haven't updated the sales page for it like forever. There's over 40 companies you get discounts from for the stuff you buy Every day, if you're part of this lifestyle, the membership pays for itself, and you get a bunch of other great content, and you get to help what we're doing. So, if you haven't ever joined, think about it, consider doing it today. Remember, you can join for one month for as little as five bucks and give it a shot. If you don't like it after that, cancel. If you like it and you want to get the discount out of a year, cancel, wait for your month to expire, and join for a year. Easy, low risk, win, win, win. I win because I get to do what I do. You win because you get discounts and you get to support the show. And the vendors win because they get business they wouldn't have otherwise. That's how I try to build a business on a win, win, win scenario. Learn more about win, win, win we're going to do today because we're going to talk to our guest, Jill Elizabeth, about woofing and how that works and how that's a win-win-win situation for many people. We're also going to learn more about that whole get out of the cage, understand what freedom is thing that many people can't see anymore, because this is a lady that lives a life that's, well, rather free, far more free than it was for, let's say, five years ago. We're also going to get a reinforcement here of what I've been teaching you guys for years, that the, the shit can hit the proverbial fan on any given day for any individual, and in fact it does. And at that moment it is when we are tested. We are tested in a way that will determine how we will go forward and whether or not we will become successful, liberated individuals. For a template on that and more, I'd like to say welcome to the show, Jill. Thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey, I've got you on to talk about prepping for real life, basically, I guess, and, and, and the real things in your life that you've had to deal with. But before we, we get deeper into that, could you just tell people a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you've done professionally in the, in the, in the past, and how you ended up doing what you do today? Okay, well, I, you know, I like to share my story because I feel like I'm so many people who are at home who haven't really embarked on the after the collapse version, but like almost everybody, you know, I had a real job. I'm actually a licensed clinical social worker and a house and a mortgage and two cars and all that normal life. And in the last, uh, event around 2000, you know, I wasn't paying attention. I was not somebody who cared about money at all. And I lost everything and I had to make that decision. I, you know, when I let the house go, I was like a bad relationship. You either had to cut your losses and move on. And I have embarked on an adventure of uh, infinite proportions. And what I did, instead of choosing to rebuild the old life, is I got a little trailer thinking I would travel for a year because I wanted to do, you know, what so many people want to do. I wanted to homestead or work on a farm or a ranch and grow my food and 
you know, do start my new life, find my community, find my tribe. And so now it's been four years later and that hasn't happened. And I've had so many different adventures and have been in survival mode for so long. It's been different than what I thought it would be. And what I've come to do is more the communications than the actual farming and ranching part and how to um, really share what's happening. And what I've learned is that are the real survival skills and what's actually going on versus so much of what we all learned about when we were in our preparation mode. Yeah, it's the pioneers that generally end up with arrows in the back, and, and if they survive, they're able to help the, the next wave, so to speak, uh, maybe do a little better than they did on the first pass through. Um, with that in mind, I, you know, I call this show the Survival Podcast, and I have new people tune every day into it, and they expect some gloom and doom bunker type thing, and we're very diverse, and we talk about a lot of different things. So I have probably a different version of the definition of survival and survivalist than, I guess, the mainstream media and some small contingent of the survival movement have. I have a feeling you do as well. So how would you define survival? Well, and that's sort of where I like to differentiate because I define survival as choosing life as opposed to defending against death. And so much of what you just talked about, the gloom and doom, is what we're afraid of. And, you know, having been a social worker, all I did was, you know, muck around in people's problems. And you really have to make that decision about why you get up each morning. Are you moving towards what you want or are you defending against what you don't want? And so I define it as choosing life and then moving forward from there. Very, very cool. I think we have a lot of similarity in that regard. In this time that you've been dealing with all this, what's been your biggest surprise that you found kind of living outside the system these last four years? Well, the the biggest surprise, which isn't really anything that's pertinent to anything, is how many personal conversations you have to have with people you don't know about how you uh, take care of your plumbing issues. So <laughs> I'm always shocked at, like, I don't even know this person. I have to have these really intimate conversations about what I do, when, and where. Um, but the other thing is I think the good news that I really wanted to talk about is how much opportunity is out there when you change your perspective, when you stop looking at it in the old way of, you know, how am I going to get that $100,000 a year salary? How am I going to be safe? How am I going to do it the way that it's been done? You kind of drop the old and shift into a new perspective, and there's so much opportunity. I think that's what's really blown me away. Can, can you talk a little bit about what is your what is your lifestyle like today? How you know where are you living? What what what, what is your home? How, you know that type of thing. Well, I'm laughing because I was listening to you the other day talking about, I think you talked about the diminishing middle class. And I always thought about myself that way. You know, I grew up in the suburbs and the city version of the world and never in a thousand years pictured I'd be where I am living how I am. And I, you know, as I told you, I wanted to be mobile. So I got into a tiny trailer thinking, you know, it would be temporary and got rid of about 95% of my stuff and started off woofing, you know, doing the, you know, trying to work on farms and, um, and that was really hard. It didn't work out the way the fantasy version is. And, um, 
but I've been on some most I've been in rural settings the whole time. I like small towns. I think that's where the opportunity is, is in the, the rural communities, because like you, I'm big into freedom and not into rules and regulations any more than I have to be. And there's, that's where there's so much opportunity in the little areas. But um, I've been on a sheep farm. Right now I'm kind of on a cow farm. I've been on um, ranches. I've been in scary trailer parks in Texas. That was my <laughs> true trailer park moment. Um, I've been, you know, within the small communities. I've been on the edges of bigger communities and um, live very tiny. I have a very tiny life, and I liken it a lot to camping. And I've been amazed at how much, like I said, I got rid of 95% of my stuff. I still don't touch most of it. And I've been, you know, hungry. I've been homeless. Well, I guess I'm technically still homeless. And how much I've learned about what I don't need and how when you're – I do it kind of opposite to you. I think you're good at making money, and I'm really good at not spending money. Mm. And And how when you can live really simply, it – allows you to understand what's of value and what's valuable to you and then build from there versus I think where we get stuck and I know I did was trying to recreate the old version of life and now you know kind of all bets are off so are you still wolfing because you said you're like on a cow farm now no. or, so you're still in that kind of mode so you're like a woofer that brings your own place to stay with you well this is and I don't this is one of the other really interesting things that's happened is um you know, the wolf thing is about how much work you can do and, you know, learning on the property. And my little bit of experiences with that was really hard. You know, it's hard to work with people and it's really hard to live with people. And now that I'm out of that in a technical way, um, I find that people who have the knowledge just assume because I'm, you know, from the city and I'm from California, which makes everybody think that I'm, you know, goofy. They don't really think I can do anything. So um, I've learned by osmosis and observation more than I've learned by training. But they're, gosh, there's such a wealth of knowledge. All these old guys and women on these farms and ranches and in these small towns have so many skills and so much knowledge. And um, and basically, you know, I don't pay rent most of the time. And I just watch the land and count the cows and do my own thing. Okay, very cool. So what is your biggest piece of advice then to give people who might be in a similar situation to you were four years ago facing, you know, losing everything? Is it is it do what you've done or take examples of what you've done and make it fit their own life? Because it, it probably isn't the thing for everybody to do to buy a little trailer and start wolfing. No. And I, you know, you were talking about the big bad event, you know, the other day and being afraid of that. And that was sort of, I wasn't paying attention. I'm not a money person. I wasn't paying attention. And I lost everything. So the first piece of advice is I'd be paying attention. And then I always maintain that you should never make a choice or a decision based on what you're afraid of might happen out in the world and just do what you want to do. Um, I think what you are talking about and I, you know, hear so many people frustrated with is we're afraid to just leap. And I, you know, my personal belief is that, you know, we learn through experiences and I would rather, you know, I work, I've worked with a lot of people who, you know, are terminal or dying. And, you know, they say the one big regret is what you didn't do versus what you did and maybe failed at. And so you just have to start with an idea. And I'm like so many people, you know, I thought I wanted to grow my own food and have my own little place and do my, write my books by the side of a stream. And, um, and what I learned is it's so much work. I don't know how anybody can do it by themselves, um, and work full time and take care of everything. And, 
Um, so, you know, the advice is that you just sort of get the idea. And if you move yourself small steps forward, things will unfold. If you wait for the perfect moment, it probably won't happen. Or you can wait till the rug is pulled out from under you like some of us did and just deal with it. <laughs> it de that definitely makes sense. So you've managed to then live rent-free for the last two years with your wolfing activities? Um, what I usually do in exchange for being on people's property is, you know, whatever kind of um, work they want to do. But mo what happens, I'm in the Southwest, and most people have to lease a lot of land because they can't be, the animals can't be concentrated, so the livestock gets spread out quite a bit. And so people have multiple tracts of land where their livestock are, and it's good to have a person there. And they... Um, you know, most people, I actually the, got started doing this by just calling up somebody I didn't know because I had to move like in one day. And I said, hey, you don't know me, but can I um, go park on your piece of property? <laughs> and he said, yes, you just don't know until you ask. You just have to pick up the phone and ask. But there are just a lot of older people who can't manage their property. And there's just a ton of property that's just sitting there vacant that's very open to people working it. Like right now I'm on one of the few places that has irrigation. And if I wanted to farm, I probably could. And so it's just, you know, there's a lot of, if you live in a concentrated urban environment, you don't really know what it's like out in the, the rural areas, but there's, it's a lot easier. Um, I am always shocked by the number of people who have just said, Oh, you sure you can pull the trailer onto my property and stay without even knowing who I am, which, you know, coming from Southern California, you would never do anything like that. So it's, uh, um, yeah, I, and I haven't paid rent for almost two years. <laughs> how, how does that change? Like your ability to live a, a life that's relatively happy and, and peaceful Uh, from a standpoint of your needs? Well, I think that's where it's good to have less than you need and it's good to have more than you need so you can figure out what you actually need. And, um, and my, for me, this has actually been a spiritual journey because I, my goal was to walk in, you know, without the net under me and see what happens because that, what you just talked about is sort of where my, I, you know, we talk about, I talk about survival because it's practical, but really, you know, the purpose of life, I believe, is who you are, not what you do. And who you are shapes what you do. And who I want to be is somebody that's happy and content. And, you know, I spent most of my first life, you know, pretty suicidal and pretty unhappy because I just didn't fit within a Monday through Friday corporate structure, you know, living that life that you should because you're afraid of what will happen. And so, I was thinking about that, you know, the last few days is that there's lots of bad stuff that happens along the way, but it's like a job you, 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 when you do what you love, you're willing to do the crummy parts. When you have a life that you love, you're willing to do the crummy parts because overall it's better versus living out of fear and doing what you think you should do to stay safe and having most of it be the crummy parts. Gotcha. So you are almost in a way like a tiny houser. Right. Except instead of using building something, you went to uh, like a, a small RV type tow behind. Yeah, it's um, I remodeled the inside of the trailer. So as an FYI, if you're going to move on a regular basis, don't build a tiny house because yeah. it's like you have to pack all the time. Well, I said that. 
Well, it is true. It's I built a tiny apartment, yeah. and so I have to repack the whole thing, and it all crashes when I drive away. <laughs> oh, so you, you you're saying you even don't do what you did. Um, I'm saying that it's it's um, it's good to learn from what other people do, and then don't assume that your first choice will be your last choice because you you can't know what you want until you experience it. Um, and I've learned a lot and what not to do. But yeah, if you're going to actually be mobile, you want to have a life that you can pick up and drive away. Versus like I have to repack everything every yeah. time I move. Yeah, it's probably better for you than a lot of these tiny houses, like I see on these documentaries where they do extreme tiny houses and all. I look at those, and this is what I think. Okay, if I was going to move when I had to, and I was going to have a piece of land, and I might be there five to ten years, and when I needed that house to move, I just hired a trucker to move that big giant thing that knows how to drive it and back it up. Fine, you know that's like a once a decade move or something. Fine, but like I was watching a show recently where these two, this couple were nurses and they would travel all over the country and do like six to eight week contracts, and they built this massive tiny house, you know. And I was just thinking that can't possibly work. No, and I wouldn't want to drive one of those tiny houses any distance because um, driving the trailer or, or an RV is, I mean, there's a lot of consideration, and those are actually. Uh, designed to travel on the road. And I look at those tiny houses just from the wind factor and think, you know, hold your breath. <laughs> yeah. I also think when I look when I watch the show, the tiny house nation show, like at least every third one has a tire blowout on the trailer. Cause they're, they're just putting weight. It seems like way too much weight for the trailers that they're putting these things on sometimes. You know, I haven't seen that, but I would totally agree with that. Um, it's a, uh, There's a lot of consideration, and I, you know, the trailer versus the RV versus the fifth wheel versus, um, you know, hauling a tent around with you versus just camping. And um, I think that, you know, my big thing is I like the mobility, and that's when, when I hear you talk about stacking, you know, multiple mm -hmm. jobs on a farm. You know, what I see the potential for is when you're mobile, you know, you can have a – Uh, routine where you maybe work with far, four or five different farms or you have a route in through four or five different small towns. Cause you know, I, you know, I think the big issue is how am I going to make money to live in the world today? And the biggest part about taking this leap out of the conventional lifestyle is how am I going to afford it? And I, I did this because I lost everything and I made that decision. If I don't own it, then I don't buy it and I'm, I'll never be in debt again. Um, and so that, You know, for me, it was about I don't want to owe anybody any money. But what I've learned is all the flex. You know, there's limitations, but there's also flexibility. And because I own my home, technically, you know, I don't have a mortgage payment. I don't have, you know, hardly any upkeep. I can do all of it myself, and I can be much more flexible. I mean, technology has really increased our ability you know to live in different ways and i think it's an interesting concept you know the tiny house is more of a i think a smaller way of living the traditional lifestyle but it's you know i love you know what you're doing i love the the idea of growing more food i love the idea of apprenticeship and you know living mobily at least temporarily really gives you that opportunity to experience a lot of different things and that will truly shape where you want to end up versus um this idea that i have to have a whole plan you have to have a house have a job i have to have xyz before i can make any kind of leap out of maybe a life that i'm not that excited about And I think there's a symbiosis there because if there's not people 
with farms or this doesn't have to be a farm thing. It could be a lot of different ways that a person that might have a, a, a place that needs help from time to time Absolutely. and someone could act like a contractor in different ways going from place to place. You have to have both of those. You have to have the, the beachhead, so to speak, and then you have to have the surfer willing to go from beach to beach. So That's there's like a ton of symbiosis anchor, yeah. there. Yeah, no, it is. There's an anchor people who want to actually own the farm. And then there's, you know, the other people who will help keep everything going. It's just like in the olden days, you know, when you had the gypsy traders come through and um, it's it is a you know, there's two ways to look at it. But I think it's been such a good experience for understanding. You know, we get very tiny in our lives because we grow up in our little system and we think that's the way it is. And it's so interesting to experience all these different ways people view the world and and it hell I always believe experience expands you and it makes you better able to create what you want versus sort of collapsing the belief system in and making your life smaller. Yeah. Definitely. I, I've got a question for you that you're never supposed to ask a woman. Uh oh. Okay. But I want you to indulge me because I'm oh. doing it for the purpose of motivating younger people, younger than you and I. Yes. How old are you? I'm fifty two. Okay, great. That's that's awesome. And you could have lied about it, I would have cared, but fine. This is my point then. How much easier is it for these young children who are part of what they call this millennial generation? If they wanted to emulate this at 18, 19, 20 years of age, right out of school, how much easier would it be for that young kid to give this a shot than it maybe was for you at your station in life? And how much is there to gain from maybe, even if they end up going back to society as, as you, you and I would call it, um, from taking that time versus maybe spending four years in a university going $80,000 in debt? Well, you know, I actually backpacked to Europe in my early 20s. So I actually did a version of this. Um, and well, I was, well, you were able to later in life do it this way. Well, I never planned on doing this later in life, let me tell you. <laughs> but you had that. But I'm saying is you can reflect go back. back and go, if I can make it out of a backpack, this is – this is, you know, well, this is doable. And I, and I had to because I had two cats and I wasn't willing to let go of my cats. And this was ah. the only way I could do it. But what I would say to your question is when I was in Europe, I was astounded by how much travel everybody did. And in America, we just don't do that, right? We just remember how you like you're in a hurry to get a job, get a house, get a responsibility. So you thought you were doing the life you were supposed to do. Um, and so, you know, the rest of the world doesn't look at it as, I think as rigidly as we do maybe here in America. And so um, you can, you know, the woofing thing, oftentimes they'll provide the housing, even if you just do it for summer. I think the best thing you can ever do for yourself is to give yourself as much opportunity and experience and variation. Because in today's world, I wouldn't even go to college. I mean, I have a master's degree, so I did the whole thing. Um, and I, I like the apprenticeship. I like the idea of, you know, learning what you want to do from somebody who knows what they're doing. Because, I mean, graduating with a $100,000 debt to make $5 an hour just doesn't seem like a good plan to me. Yeah, I remember reading an article. It might have been in Backwoods Home about a young man that did this. He got out of high school, and he took basically any job he could get as a, a, a you know a contractor working on building houses. So he worked day labor. He'd take a three-week project, whatever. And he bought a small RV and towed it around. And he, you know, his first year he made enough money, he bought a piece of land. And, you know, he didn't spend much time on it because he was traveling around and he'd stay anywhere he could and as cheap as possible, but he, he was able to buy a piece of land cash. 
The next year, he was able to basically put in the foundation and frame and get walls and a roof up and have basically a stripped-down house. Spent another year doing it. And at the end of that third year, he had a three-bedroom house fully paid for that he built 90% himself. He had learned all of the, the skills necessary during that three years of traveling around, taking any job he could get. And he might, you know, work drywall for a couple weeks and make a little less money than he could framing because, well, I need to learn how to do drywall. And so that's a totally different adaptation of the same model you're following. But his goal was I wanted, he wanted a home. He wanted more of a, not, it's not a huge house, but it's more of a conventional type of house. He wanted paid for land and he didn't want any debt. So it took him three years to get there. And people say, well, that's a long time. Well, it's a lot less than 30. Well, and it's, you know, I think from a, the therapist part of me, you know, our 20s and 30s are really about going out in the world and seeking what we think we want, right? We want, you know, to get married. We want a house. We want to have a job. We want to have, you know, this lifestyle. And then, you know, the middle age is you sort of reevaluate, well, maybe I don't want those things. And then you either, you know, most people I see are financially stuck, so they have to stick with the old because they're stuck there. But maybe, you know, you would make different choices. And I think what happens, what he didn't do, what happens to so so many people is you do all the things that you should do. You know, your I'm family expects you. Right, yeah. Well, you do. And part of that, you know, is is this idea. And, I, you know, I'm not a young person anymore, so I don't know how much um, – you know, when I was growing up, you did those things because that's, you know, I did what I was supposed to. I got a house. I, you know, got a 401k and I did all the right things. I'm such a good rule follower. I had followed all the right rules and I still lost everything. And so, you know, when you're young, you still sort of believe that you follow the rules, you'll get ahead. But if experience teaches us anything, it's only the people who are willing to, you know, go big or go home or break the rules that really find those creative ways to express themselves. And the second piece is who cares if you build that up and you don't like it? Well, then just pick something different, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, in his case, he had no debt on it. So if he turned around and sold a three-bedroom house, even if it was a very modest house on a modest piece of land, and he sold it for a hundred grand, and he and he walked away with a hundred thousand dollars in his pocket and no debt, way ahead of somebody that went to four years of college, and he did it in three. And and like that's adapting it to what he wanted, and he had figured he's lucky he figured out what he wanted at that point. But I think that 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 mobility is is very attractive. Now you've chronicled a lot of what you're doing in a book called the Survival Solution Workbook. What's your message, and why is it of value to invest time and energy, you know, reading your book? Because my biggest thing about books anymore is I do a show. Five days a week. If I want a book, I can write an author. They'll send me a copy. I got to take the time to read it. So, what is the reader going to get out of it? Well, I, you know, I want to clarify that it's actually a workbook. It's not about what's been happening to me okay. as the journey. That's on the website. I have a bunch of videos and I have blogs and I have uh, a spotty chronicle of this whole process. Um, what the book is is it's kind of a synthesis of what I've really learned over the last, you know, 30 plus years because as you are, I would say, an expert on how to solve problems. You know, what I, my takeaway is, is that the solutions are abundant. The problem is why we don't put those solutions or systems into place. Um, and I think that's the frustration for everybody. You know, why aren't things changing? Why aren't the things changing? And so what I've learned, you know, personally and professionally is that it's the people that are the problem, not the solutions. Because I believe 
that the system reflects the person. The person doesn't reflect the system. And so if you want to change the system, you got to change the person. And so what the book is, is it's just an eight-step process. It only takes about an hour and a half. And this is what's so fascinating, like you said. Like, I don't want to, you know, we know, we don't want to invest time in that. You know, we'll spend four years at college. But but the book itself is, and this is so unexciting, I can't even, you know, tell you what a snooze fest the idea is. But it's what I call value-based decision-making. Because when you start making your decisions based on what you value versus what your goals are or what your beliefs are, then you are creating a life that's in alignment with what your heart and spirit really want. And you won't make all the missteps that you do when you're chasing goals, like in your 20s and 30s, that may not really resonate for you. So what I really have done is try to simplify a lot of what everybody talks about, like how to make decisions, how to make, how to set goals. So you really just walk away with one question that you have to ask yourself. So in order to exemplify this, I will toss it back at you. So the book is actually a workbook and the end is just okay. a worksheet is what is the, the number one value that drives your life, Jack Spirko? Well, mine, it's because I've, you know, can give you a quick answer to this because I've spent a lot of my own time searching this, but it's, it's personal liberty. That that is my driving force, and it's not only the most important thing for me, and maybe it's improperly applied, but it's actually the most important thing that I want for others. And, and but of course, that then leads to you asking yourself, well, what will you do with that? So the the true answer then for me is to teach. That is that is the most important thing in my life is to be able to teach others because to me that's legacy. So I think personal liberty is the gateway that, that gives everybody the opportunity, and then you have to figure out what you're going to do with that, if that makes sense. No, it does, and I um, and I'm like you. Freedom is the one, so it's sort of the same thing that you know drives every decision. And the beauty of understanding what your real values are versus what you think they are, because most people will spot off. You know, these are what my values are. Loyalty, not. trust, whatever, whatever, whatever sounds like what people want to hear. Well, and you think we all think that we're living, you know, our highest ideals. But what, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I think you do a really good example of exemplifying what living your values is because you invest your money, you invest your time, you invest your energy. And I divine, define energy as thoughts, feelings, and actions. And 99% of the time, most of us are saying one thing and doing something else. So we're out of alignment. And that's what creates all that conflict. So you know, I would say back to you, as you understood that about yourself and you started to make your personal decisions about what you valued, how did you see your life shift? Well, I mean, I think that probably my biggest blessing in life was the fact that I succeeded as far as, you know, moving up the corporate ladder and everything's very, very quickly because it allowed me to get there and realize it sucked before I was so vested in it that I couldn't change my mind. If that makes sense. So had it had it taken me the typical 20 years to get to where I got in 10, at that point I would have been stranded. And it was still a difficult thing to extract. You've got a wife that, you know, stuck by you while you, you, you move up that chain, dealt with all the nights you weren't home, all of that stuff. And then you go, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, but at least it was logistically possible. Or I think most people don't realize that, and it's kind of what you're talking about here with finding out what you want as you, as a young person, you're thinking, well, if I was just the boss, right, everything would be awesome. Well, generally, the boss's job sucks. 
and he, he actually probably like there's some position between you and the boss, this middle position where the app you've actually optimized like the hourly rate if you're still in a trading your time for dollars. Because by the time you get to that boss position, you think so awesome, you actually end up making a, a pretty crappy hourly rate because you're working at midnight. And so I was able to get to the point where I had that corporate success while I was still young enough to go, yeah, I don't want this. And that leads you to have to ask, well, what, what did you think you were going to get and what do you want? And what I hear you saying is you have a methodology to help people try to shortcut that because if I had defined the things I really wanted in my life and then said, okay, does being a regional vice president of sales for a $500 million company get me that? And instead of what I thought that job was, actually analyzing it, I would have said, no, it gets me misery. That, that's what it gets me. And that's sort of the difference between goal versus value, right? Because you, your goal is to be successful. But when your success is based on a value that isn't important to you, like just making money, if profit is your value, that's something that even if you have bazillions of dollars, you can still be unhappy. And at the end of your life, you go, I've never heard anybody talk about money at the end of their life. And, and yeah, so it is a system to, Put yourself in alignment so that you're making. I want to stop you there. There's there's only one thing people do with money, as they start to face the end of their life, figure out how to dispose of it, whether it's giving it away or spending it before they die. You know, that's, my new. It's th- interesting. Well, my new theory is that I right now I'm um, there's a lot of older people in town, and I'm just everybody's so unhappy in terms of you know they can't manage their stuff, they don't have a lot of money, but just in terms of of not being able to deal with their stuff and. You know, then there's the the vultures, you know, scooting around trying to get their stuff or their money. And what I've decided in my newest thing is that you should spend down to zero before you die and you should get rid of everything before you die. So that you, the older you get, the more simple you get and the more you give away. Um, because for me, and I'm not a money person, this is where, you know, I get in trouble. But me, for me, money is a tool that I invest in what I want in life versus something, again, you know, defending against what I'm afraid of. And so... You know, if you're good at making money or if you have money, invest in it in terms of what creates life or what gives you life versus the fear. You know, when you get the big job, now you got the mortgage, now you got the the car payment, you got the kids in college, you got, you know, all these people dependent on you. You get stuck. The money, you know, freezes you up someplace you don't want to be. Yeah. Did I wonder? No, you're fine. I I, I think you're dead (laughs) on. I think that. Well, I've been I've been waiting kind of to bring this point up. Right. I think this is a good point now to do so, and that is that the the whole fear thing is the biggest thing I try to get people over, and I don't care how you get over it. I care that, and I think that we're all different people and we're different beings, and we have different ways that we're going to use the freedom that we gain, and we have different talents that can be utilized to get us there, and we have to get past that fear so we can figure out what what to do with the time what to do with the freedom, and what talents we're going to use. So the path that we all take might lead to the same kind of destination, but it has a different look to it. Absolutely. And the, 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 the thing you did was, well, since I've already lost everything, let me get some things they can't take. And it had to at some point along the way, even though it wasn't easy and it was hard and there were things you probably didn't expect and it was more complicated than maybe you expected at the time, like, what kind of fears left? What are you going to take from me? Right? And that, it's yeah. Something for you to take. Well, I that was the aha. This, this little mobile house. 
You're screwed. You can't have it. I can always find some place to put it. So even if you decided at some point to acquire a little more and to have a little more, you don't even feel losing that anymore so much because it's like, well, I already did that. It wasn't that big a deal. Anything that I, I've acquired, if I really wanted it, I could acquire it again. There's a path to this now. No, and that, you know, what you say is absolutely right. I have to tell you, the first aha about that I had was when I lost everything, and I'm like, you know what? I don't have to carry insurance because I have nothing to lose. There's nothing insurance. And, and if you want to sue me, sue me, go for it. Go for it. You can, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you want so, to take this little trailer? I mean, well, no one yeah. wants that, right? I mean, it's <laughs> like, it's the blood from a stone thing. Well, it's a, there is a freedom to it, and I have that conversation and I noticed that with myself is that now that you're right, I don't have much left to lose. I will never go back to the old life. Even if I could have a lot of money, I wouldn't because it's a, you have to be responsible. You have to take care of it. You have to put it somewhere. You have to manage it, blah, blah, blah. So it's, um, it's a different way of looking at things, but I, I notice, and this is one of my things is to, you know, I always want to push myself. So I'm a risk taker and I know a lot of people aren't, but I, you know, when I'm, I say, you know, my rear end's hanging out on the edge. I'm shocked at how I just keep going as opposed to doing the safe thing. Because like, technically I could go back and get a real job, you know, because yeah. I still have my license. I mean, I could go back into that old world. But even on the days where I have so little money in the bank, I would never tell anybody. Um, I can't believe I still do this. But you know what? It's never not been okay. There's never been a moment where it's not been okay. I've been a little hungry sometimes. I've been a little scared. But it's never not been okay. And it's much better now than, you know, when I had my pretty scary periods. But, um, and people are awesome. People, that's why I like small towns. People are awesome. They will not let you fall unless you're, you know, like a chronic victim where you yeah. take everybody for everything. If they know you're trying, they'll, they'll, they'll help you is, is kind of what you're saying. It's, I, I, this is what I've always found about small town people. And I grew up in a rural coal town. That if a person was a bum, like they didn't want to do anything for themselves, then they were a bum and you didn't have anything to do with them. If somebody slipped, you picked them up as fast as you could. You do. And what I've done, and because, you know, one of my tenets is integrity, is, you know, I don't ever rip anybody off. I don't do anything. But I also have focused a lot on what I can do for free for other people. So I may not have money to spread around, but I give you my time. I, in the town I'm in right now, I built a whole website for the town. And um, you invest in others the way that you can. And when people see you do that, then your opportunities come your way. So when I talk about, you know, there's a lot of opportunity out there i you know i don't want to offer the misconception you can just show up and people will give you stuff sure but when you invest in them and they can see that they can trust you there is so much abundance i you know i think that's sort of the other grand illusion is how much abundance is out there and how you have to define it like for me time is my most valuable thing and that is what i have in abundance well, and what you're talking about is you start getting into what in the corporate elitist world, in the, the business school world, they call around a company, it's soft values. In permaculture, we call it the forms of capital, specifically eight forms of capital. And you start to mm -hmm. build things like experiential capital and cultural capital and social capital, spiritual capital, things that go beyond 
just financial capital, intellect. So it's an example like, it's like if you know, if it's something's capital, it can be used and converted into other capital. So you take intellectual capital, right? The understanding and knowledge of how to build a website. You do that for somebody with no, no specific demand of return, but yet that develops a social capital there. Okay, this person provided something to us. It is reasonably uh, acceptable that we would do some things in return for them, the reciprocity being the foundation of human culture, uh, not so much a reciprocity from a standpoint of a demand reciprocity, but it's just a natural human instinct that he who helps me, I, I, I help in return. Uh, so you, you then convert that intellectual capital to social capital and, and cultural capital within that community. And that's, and you're right, and that's your language, and that's where it's, I think the value thing comes into play because we have, you can share values with having a different language and a different way of understanding it. So even, um, it doesn't matter where you are when you make your choices and decisions and how you choose to live. It's something that's understandable whether you speak the language or you're in a whole nother part of the world and things that translate. But there's something I've been think I've entitled it lately called entitlement depression. Um, and so I think in opposition to your, you know, capital idea is that we also have this culture that says I should get what I want, when I want and how I want it. And there's sort of this, so I'm calling it entitlement depression because I'm seeing it around me, especially with people who are older that, um, and I see that with young people, there's just an entitlement and how, um, I, you know, those were values instilled with me as a child. I don't know about you, but, um, and yeah, where that absolutely. goes. Yeah. That you work for what you get, et cetera. And I think that we, we've lost some of that. And so like with the permaculture back to the land, all of this stuff, the biggest thing that young people tell me they can't acquire is land and access to land. So what did you spend to buy this little RV you have? I, well, I only paid $600 for it, which by the way was too much. And then I remodeled it probably for another couple thousand. But, um, the other thing, I mean, like I said, it's just, there's so many ideas out there. But my Every point I was leading to with that is how much access to land do you have now? I'm on, I don't know how many, a couple hundred acres. The last place I was on had over 800 acres. Um, the, which I've grown to love is not being able to see anybody around me. Yeah. <laughs> never go back but what but the access to land and and this is where what you're talking about is so important is understanding you know one of the survival skills that i think is so essential and so missing in terms of this hunker down mentality is you have to be able to interact with people you have to have communication skills and you have to be able to establish relationships once you have that once you're into the circle so to speak I mean, there must be a couple thousand acres around where, just where I'm at, just sitting around empty because people are too old to take care of it or they don't live in the state anymore. Um, you know, things are falling apart. There's so much land and we need to shift the way we think about the profit model is that, well, I only am going to let you on, you know, if you give me $500,000 versus it's just sitting there. It's better to invest in having food and people are getting more open to that. Um, and, especially the older people who aren't able to take care of things they're you know, like I said, I'm just sitting out here and I don't even have to do very much, but if I wanted to, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of pl space that I could farm if it's something that I wanted to do. So it's, there's a tons and tons and tons of land and old houses and old trailers. And, um, if you're, if you're willing to be more flexible with your plumbing issues, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I mean that might be part of like. So you have this little mobile home, but then if you're going to pull it onto a place, you got plumbing. You know, is there electricity access? So that might be something that you have to kind of work around. Well, I think that again, it's always good to do without. So, like my bottom lines is, are I need electricity and I need internet. I need internet for work, but I just need internet because part of being in the middle of nowhere is having access to information. But it, you sort of establish what your bottom lines are. And one of the things I did it was read, you know, a lot of books about what life was like in the teens, twenties, and thirties. And there's a great book called Dust Bowl Diary. I think her name is Anne Marie Lowe. She was in um, North Dakota from 27 to 37. And when you read about what their life was like, you can survive anything. We're very soft. That's one of my big things is how soft we are, mm-hmm. how how uncomfortable with discomfort. You know, I have to have my shower every day. I have to have, you know, my all my stuff. I lived the first year without a refrigerator because I wanted to see if I could. Sure. Um, and I, you know, I, I think the challenge is, is it's, it's good to expand yourself. It's not about deprivation as much as to me. It's about learning what I can and can't live with. And it makes me better. It makes me more compassionate. It makes me more, it makes me stronger. Um, and we're, I think people in America especially are so soft and so, um, protected. They just have no idea what real life is like. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I, for a while I was calling the, the current generation of kids coming up teacup kids. And, and then I realized I was doing them a disservice because they were actually China plates because the teacups were their parents. <laughs> right. So it's like the, the we've had this d- decline in resiliency and, uh, uh, and when I say tough, I don't mean like able to go and wrestle a bear to the ground and kill it, right? I'm talking about just a basic human toughness that, hey, I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to die. It's okay if I don't have what I want this freaking millisecond. And if somebody gives me a little bit of a hard time about something, I'm not going to crumble into a ball of tears. When I was still in the corporate world, I was in this kind of place where I, for a while where I was doing, it was corporate, but it was construction. So I was running a company, but the company's job was installing underground cabling and stuff like that. And I had some young guys that were working on these crews and they would get upset about things. I'm like, what's a, what's wrong? And this is, this is 20 years ago. Okay. So this is, this is not the teacups of today. This is the teacups of yesterday. You know, 19, 20 year old kid. And they're like, you know, the guys are always hassling me and giving me a hard time and stuff. They were like broke up over it. And I'm like, you're working construction. This is what men do to each other. They don't dislike you. If they didn't like you, they wouldn't talk to you at all. You know, they saw it as like picking on like you were being picked on in kindergarten classroom or something. And like I had to have these long conversations with these young men. And I was only a few years older than I'm saying, look, this is normal. And, and it's like that's when I first started seeing that symptom. And I've just seen it get worse and worse over the years. And I think it comes from. The fact that they don't have any real fulfillment in their lives. So anything that disturbs the little false fulfillment they've created for themselves just is catastrophic to them. Well, the other thing that happened when I was a kid, my mom went back to graduate school to be a social worker. And, you know, so I was at the the beginning of that time when the study was about self-esteem, right? So we wanted to give the kids self-esteem. And it was with the best intentions that we wanted kids, you know, the more affluent you are, the more comfortable you want your kids to be. Sure. That we wanted them to feel safe. We didn't want them to be bullied. We wanted them to to 
you know, experience the best emotions, but we didn't create, I think the word they're tossing around these days is emotional resiliency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at the way a muscle works, you know, muscle gets strengthened because you break it down. You actually break the fibers down and then they grow back stronger. Well, what we've done, you know, with our political correctness and, and always protecting the quote unquote innocent victim is we've not allowed that muscle to ever break down and get stronger because, you know, part of being young is getting your feelings hurt. It's losing. I think that's one of the big things I hear is that nobody's experienced losing and then they go out into the real world and they have their first loss and they can't cope. They have a breakdown and, and it is, you know, we have deprived younger people of the ability to function because there's been very few mental or emotional challenges. And, um, and that is, you know, that's where I really came back to this idea that we have to change who we are because the system and the solutions are not part. I mean, I listen to you spout off solutions and I look at me and there's opportunities and solutions. There is no shortage of solutions. There's no shortage of resources. There's no shortage of money. There is a huge shortage of courage and determination and willingness to just suck it up and move forward. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think it's partly because, you know, the old saying is, how do you, how do you possibly know joy if you don't know sorrow? Yeah. So if you've made someone's life safe and happy and given them self-esteem for accomplishing nothing, they don't know the difference between accomplishment and, 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 and failure. I, and I think that, that, like, we have to work really hard to make these young people act this way. It's not easy. It takes years of social programming and conditioning because I remember when my, my nephew was like six years old and he was playing basketball. And they're, you know, at six, they can barely bounce the ball or whatever, and they put the rim down a couple feet off. And that's fine because, you know, you let them play to their level. Well, then they don't keep score. Because <laughs> someone will lose. Well, what's the point of the game if there's not a winner and a loser? Oh, they're just learning to have fun. It, so, but what was interesting is you could walk over to the bench and go, hey guys, what's the score? 37-21, we're kicking their butts. They uh, do, right? They were old enough to add twos and threes together and know if there was a three-pointer or a single-point shot. They, and both sides knew the score. So at that point, those kids, despite our best efforts, were still being real. But by the time they're into like high school, they, they've lost that because they've had six, eight, ten years of having it beaten down and being told you're super, you're special all the time. And I think what makes them so depressed is eventually they figure out that it's all bull. And if you've told somebody they're great yeah. all their life and they find out all the reasons they thought they were great are untrue, then they feel, and the only way I can describe it is like a piece of shit. Because they feel like, I can't possibly be good. There could be nothing good about me. And they don't see all the great things they really have going for them because all of the self-esteem was built on a facade. Well, it, it is. I mean, you're absolutely right. So here's where I want to transition to this because this is where I see the missing piece is that it's really easy to focus on what the problems are and it's easy to talk about solutions. And then the really key piece that I don't hear talked about, which is why you're an example, why I'm trying to be an example, and there's there are examples, is the best way to shift people out of what's not working is to give them an example of what is working. Mm. And... 
when you, and that's the beauty of the internet is you can share your stories. You can find success because, um, you know, that's why AA works. It's that it's, you know, it's a program of attraction. They say, because when you see somebody do something, what you want, then that gives you more courage to move forward than somebody giving you statistics or pointing out why things won't work. And I think as a society, we're so finger pointing right now. And this is what drives me crazy is that, you know, let's stop talking about who's to blame and let's start, start talking about what can we, let's point to examples that do work. And, you know, the way the mind works, most of us are wired to, to take in negative information more than positive information. But when you are ready to step out, what is more inspiring than somebody who's done what you want to do versus just all sitting around bitching about what you hate about your life, right? Absolutely. And I, so I that, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, I think that, that, like, so that's what I think is a big problem for people is understanding, like, the, instead of just talking about this stuff, there's actually concrete actions that they can take. People would say, well, I, I'd like to do what she did, but I can't. Well, of course you can. Or I'd like to do what Jack's doing, but I can't. Well, you probably can. Would it look the way it does when I do it or when you do it? Probably not. You would tune it to yourself, but those are two concrete examples. And it, I think that what people have a hard time understanding anymore is if anybody can do it, you probably can too. Um, and I and the the problem is is that the first bump people quit. Like that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, what does make you keep moving forward even when things are bad? You know, because you obviously move yourself forward. So what do you? What is the way that you push yourself through the discomfort? Because the discomfort is when we tune out and we give up. Oh, this hurts. Oh, this is hard. Oh, people think I'm stupid. Because let me tell you, people think I'm so weird and crazy. But I don't care. I just keep moving forward. So what is it that keeps you moving forward when you hit one of those crummy spots? Because your life, I'm sure, has not been perfect either. The the, the factual knowledge that no one's going to do it for you. And if you want it, you got to get it done. I mean... I don't know. I think it's part of growing up as, you know, a rural country coal miner kid. You know, if you wanted to go fishing today, well, you could ride your bike six miles to get to where the fish are, or you could not go. And no one really gave a damn whether you went or not. It was up to you if you wanted to do that. And, like, if the, if the, if the old man said, hey, I need the garden taken care of today, you either did it or you were, you were in shit for it at the end of the day. So, I mean, I just think I grew up with the whole concept of, there was a, a certain amount of, of things that just need to be done, so you, you got to do them. And then I also think it was, you know, I served in the military. And you do not get tasks in the military, especially the military that I served in. I, I, things, I think, are a little softer even in the military today. But there was you, you get a mission in the military. And a mission means you either do it or you die trying. It, without actually – there's no uh, – Nothing about that is a extreme. That's legitimately how a mission works in the military. There are missions that if you can't accomplish them, you fall back to a secondary mission. And if you can't accomplish that, you're probably dead. And and, and there's just a certain value, I think, to having that attitude. That And I, I guess it's like if you actually want something, you have to go get it. And I think what you're talking about, which sort of takes me back to where the point I'm trying to make, too, is that you, you're making your decisions based on the higher value. You're not letting the temporary discomfort de derail you. And most people, you know, I don't I, I've never really understood what it is about myself that keeps me moving forward because, um, you know, I never 
concrete thought about the values or what moved me forward. But, you know, I did not function well in my 20s and 30s. And um, every day was a struggle just to stay alive. And I never understood what kept me moving forward. And so, but that's where we have to look at ourselves when something that we want looks hard or far away. You have to just make the decision to move forward because it's going to give you the end thing, but you're not necessarily going to get it right now. And, you know, the military, I think, has the advantage of just torturing you until you do it. (laughs) It's harder when you're by yourself. I I think that it's like (laughs) the only way the military gives you that is if that's what you wanted when you went there or somewhere along the way of the breakdown phase, you decide I can do this and I want this. And is that not an awesome feeling when you push through the discomfort and you do it? Well, absolutely. And I, I, I think that I think some people are kind of wired that way, and I am. So that's like a, it, it makes it a little easier for me. But there's people that have thrown around the idea that we should have, like like Israel does, compulsory military service for young people. And I, I don't think that's a good idea. I, I really, really don't think that's a good idea. But I do kind of wish there was some sort of an analog to military training that young people could avail themselves of. Because when you're cold and you're tired and you're sure, I just can't do any more, and then you do, there's a switch mentally that goes off that the next time you're in that position, you go, oh, I remember this. Yes, I can. And Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that if you could just give it to somebody, God, you want to. You know, when you see somebody that doesn't have it, you're just thinking, God, if I could just give you this. But it, on some levels, it, it has to be earned. You you have to be the one to decide it. And whenever you tell somebody that doesn't have it that it is a decision, they always think you're making it sound easier than it is. They always think it's easy to say once you've gotten there or whatever. And the reality is it's that simple for everyone because it doesn't have to be climbing Mount Everest. All it has to be is the point where you were sure you met your limitation mentally, physically, whatever. And then you push through it and you get the reward on the other side of it. And then all of a sudden this whole can't thing goes out the window. I think that we live in a world of can'ts and and, and I, I don't know. I've become blind to them. I don't, I don't see the problem 90% of the time when somebody tells me what their problem is. I'm like, I don't even think that's there. I don't even see what you're talking about. Well, that's where it's it's so hard to make this switch. And I think, you know, you have to, to I will qualify in terms of having, you know, spent almost 25 years working with people. You're more the exception than the rule in terms of being productive. But we all have our different journey, right? We all have our different things that we're, um, you know, learning about. And it's... Um, it's a, I wish there was an easy way to do it, but it's sort of what you're talking about. It is a decision, and that is, you know, what I've come to understand is that we want to change things at the system level. But everything begins with a decision. And, you know, it's simple as cause and effect. And if you want to change the effect, you have to go to cause. And we spend all our time and energy focusing on the effects. If I have more money, if I have the right person, if I was healthier, if I had the right opportunity, if there was just land, um, and it's and it's not the solution never lies at effect. It always lies with 
than cause. And so I think the switch you're talking about is you understand you are the cause of change where most people are still blaming and focusing on effect. They haven't been able to push themselves back to the level of what the real cause is. And that takes you to responsibility. And that's the thing that I've just never found a way to make, you know, kind of sexy or interesting is taking responsibility. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I liken it to this. Like the other thing I try to get across to people is it doesn't matter if whatever your problem is, isn't your fault. It's still your problem. So I think people have this this expectation nowadays that if however they lost their job wasn't their fault, somebody's supposed to fix it. Or if however they went bankrupt wasn't really if it if it it's, it's always your fault to some degree. But even if it really was a thing where they were the victim, it doesn't matter. It, you could sit around being the victim, or you could start doing something about it. And in the end, it's up to you. And I think there's this, this like stall mode people go into because they're like, well, since this isn't my fault, somebody should fix it. And, and, and my response is it usually is your fault, by the way. But even if it isn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. So I'll even let you say it's not your fault, even if it is. As long as you'll realize doesn't matter, you got to do something about it. And that is, um, you know, the shift is that we are a victim culture. We pay you to be disabled. We pay you to be a victim. We pay you. You're successful if you're a martyr. You know, you're, and we don't, I mean, how many stories are about the person? Remember Horatio Alger? Do you remember those stories? The, um, the Horatio Alger, which if you worked hard and you got ahead. And now it's like if you're a victim, you're rewarded. If you are, I call it the lightning bolt. If you're the, the one who gets spotted in the crowd and becomes a multimillionaire, you're, you're the one that wins the lottery is that we are in a, a culture of victim and we glorify that. We identify with that. And yet the reality is I, you know, and I believe that we are responsible for everything that we do create everything. And the minute you own that, see the way I own that is because for me, that's where freedom is. The minute I take a hundred percent responsibility for my life, I am now truly free because if I have to depend on anybody else to change things so I can be happy, I'm going to have a very long wait. I mean, I look at it this way. Even if you're, you, 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 you leave your house, you come back home and a freaking meteor, smashes your house. There's no world in which I'm going to blame you for the meteor. Your house is still smashed. Yeah. It's still up to you to do whatever is necessary to put your life back together. And I, I and like I, what you're saying is we subsidize mediocrity, we subsidize failure, we subsidize injury, we subsidize the, a mentality of I'm somehow disabled or cannot. And son of a gun, government messes a lot of stuff up. But when they subsidize something, you generally get more of it. Yep. There's no incentive. If I, if you were going to give me free money every month to not do anything, where is my incentive? <laughs> yeah, and then there's an expectation and entitlement mentality that, that happens with that after a certain amount of time. So I was saying the other day, like, if I brought you a pie today, you'd be like, Jack, thanks for the pie. I really appreciate that. It's awesome. And if I brought you a pie tomorrow, you'd be like, wow, two pies in a row. You really didn't have to do this. But if I brought you a pie every day for like a year, when I show up, you're going to be like, what kind of pie you got for me today? Now, if this gets worse, though, if, if like we both die and my son takes on the responsibility of delivering a pie to your daughter, and by the third generation that's still going on, and one day our great-grandchilds meet each other, and, and, and my, my son, great-great-grandson doesn't have uh, a pie for your great-granddaughter, she's like, where the hell's my pie, jerk? Mm -hmm. I depend on that pie. Right. And that's 
That's what this type of like an entitlement-based system, uh, a subsidization of, of what you can't do or disability or lack of income or whatever breeds. I'm all for helping people up, and I don't pretend to have all the answers, but if you are willing to put people into a, a cycle where they're then provided for for the rest of their life for simply fogging a mirror, you can't be surprised when they choose to take you up on it. And that's what we've done. And I, you know, I, my hope is that, um, when you show people a way out and you show people that you're happy being out, then they're more willing to take that leap. And the reality is, is most people like myself, you know, sort of wait until the rug is pulled out from underneath you. But I think all the, the preparation stuff, all the gathering information is sort of part of that process that, that gets you closer to making that leap. And, and, you know, for me, it's just a really simple switch. And it's so hard, so hard, so hard for people to do. But you're, all you're doing is turning away from what you don't want and facing what you do. And people who are reliant on everyone and everything to take care of themselves, they're just not really happy people. But those aren't the people that are really going to change. It's the borderland people that really are You know, if you're in that middle space, if you're afraid but you want it, that's the 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 ring, you know, that where change happens, and then that becomes momentum and it moves it forward. As a society, you know, as a social worker, I saw this: is we invest most of our time and money and energy into the most acute examples of of victims and disability, instead of investing in the the you know, I I would say vaccinations, but I'm not a big fan of them. Instead of investing in prevention, we invest in acute terminal illness, and you will never change a culture that way no you, you you absolutely won't and then we act like it's a miraculous thing when somebody with a disability functions in society i mean like they're a oh my god could you imagine that this person did they're holding a job down as a checker or a, a stock boy or like a sacker and look they have a disability oh my wow instead of just going well that's great that they have a job let's move on with life And it it, it 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 then sends a message to people that have that same disability, like not only is it amazing if you get to this level, this is the best you can help for, and you have to be a special disabled person or whatever to get to this level instead of just saying, hey, you know, you can do more than this if you want to. You know? And I think that's why bringing it back to, um, you know, we as a culture, you know, we celebrate really superficial things versus purposeful things. And, and when I, um, you know, one of the things I used to say when I, you know, when you pay someone to stay at home and do nothing, they have no reason to get up in the morning. If you have a purpose, you have a reason to get up in the morning. And even, you know, there's the nursing home studies where if the person had a plant in their room, they had something to water, they had some purpose, their depression, you know, reduced, they were happier, they lived longer, they needed less pain medication because at our core, we need purpose. And one of the things we've done in our world is we've taken purpose away because we've taken responsibility away and we sort of give it all away and we go with distraction and entertainment and sort of being disassociated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the big thing. Wouldn't you agree that it, like it's the fact that people don't have a sense of purpose and the, the reason to get off of an assistance program or something like that isn't just to have more money, but to have a purpose, to, to have something to do. I, that's why I've always been in favor of You know, when we say it's like a person's going to get welfare or something like that, I'd rather not do that. But if we're going to do that, they should have to work for it in some way. 
I don't care if they're picking up trash on the side of the road, whatever it is, because that actually gives them a reason to get out of bed in the morning, like you said, and go do something. Um, and it also reinforces that, yeah, you can do something. You can do something. We all know you can do something. And when people say, well, what about the people that really can't? Okay, we'll worry about those people when we find them. There, there's, there's people that really are, you know, bedridden, can't move, whatever, fine. But that is such a small, thin slice of this group that we've assigned that value to that it, it's preposterous. And we're victimizing these people far more by telling them what they can't do than we would be if we just said you're on your own. And we do. And one of the things I can tell you from healthcare is that when all you have to do is spend time thinking about all the ways your body doesn't work, guess what you spend all your day doing? And then we put you <laughs> on all these medications, so you have all these side effects, so you can't do anything. And it's, um, there, I was listening to a priest talk about, he worked in, um, the inner city in Los Angeles, and his, his goal initially, you know, was to make peace among the gangs, and that just never worked. And he finally figured out, you know, what people needed was jobs, not peace, right, in the gangs. And the same thing is true for purpose. It's it, it's what you need is energy that moves you forward versus just an idea that has no energy to it. And that's why I love the physical. Even if you don't know what you want to do, if you, like, plant a garden and you see it grow, there's reward in that. If you build something, there's reward in that. And it's hard you know, when you talk about purpose, I still believe it's who you are, but who you are will generate what you do. But seeing that concrete reward to your efforts, to your getting up in the morning, that is so reinforcing. I mean, that is how you move society forward. So you have a podcast where you talk about a lot of the things that are going on in your life. Is it more focused on these bigger picture ideas or more on what's going on personally with you or, or, or what? It's kind of both. I, you know, I can't help myself because I'm, you know, a therapist, social worker, person at heart. And I, I laugh at the abstract versus the specific because on the one hand, I usually am ranting about snakes and mice. And on the <laughs> other hand, talking about the abstract ideas. But where I think that the miss is, is that life is about the abstract ideas. And then how do we apply them specifically? So I try to tie that up. Um, and the other thing that I'm trying to do with my podcast is to stay positive because um, just from a relationship point of view, I don't know if you know this, but if you're in a relationship, for every negative that you hear, you need seven positives to balance that out. And if you think about the content that we all are pulling into ourselves, you know, I don't know, the average I heard now was 10 hours a day of just the negative, you know, this is what's wrong, we're going to war, we're bankrupting, blah, blah, blah. We have to be willing to invest our energy into positive things in terms of keeping us motivated in terms of moving forward. That's why I call it a journey, because it it needs to be movement. You know, life isn't static. But so my goal is, you know, 30 minutes, three times a week. Hopefully you'll download and walk. So you're getting a little exercise. That's why I love podcasts because you can do two things at one time is my goal is to infuse you into the positive by sort of marrying a lot of these abstract ideas. I ask questions. Each one is a question to get you to think and challenge your belief systems a little bit and keep you moving forward because you will be so much happier when you're moving towards what you want versus being frustrated facing what you don't want. So what do you think the biggest 
issue is in restricting people taking responsibility and going out and creating something for themselves. We can talk about society does this and society does that, but and I do think that's like if you look at the mega trend, right, of, of people that are just like that, that's fine. But in the end, the minute the person starts saying, "I want more," "I I, I need to have more," starts to if they're listening to us, right, then they're already in that mode where they at least are aware of this this self-imposed restriction, what's that last piece that they just won't let go and go freaking do it? I mean, when I was... This is what I learned, yeah. Well, I was in California this year, and I I was at Permaculture Voices. These are people that are doing something. But I I got to the point where every other person came up except saying, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to do. And at the end of my talk, I said, stop telling me what you're going to do. Go do something and come tell me what you've done. (laughs) <laughs> like, like, why are you, you like you're living in a future and you don't realize the future is now and you're going to talk about this for another year and next year you're going to come tell me at the same conference what you're getting ready to do. Go do something. What What do you think is like the impediment that, that keeps that person from just freaking doing it? Well, I'm going to tell you the great big secret. I learned this with depression, with other people, and with myself. You will never feel like it. You just do it anyways. Hmm. So, you know, when people were depressed, you know, as a therapist, I used to have to tell them, you're never going to feel like doing it. Because you're right, you're depressed. I don't feel like it. I'm unmotivated. You're waiting for the day that you'll feel better. It's never going to happen. It's the action that will create the feeling that will move you forward. And it's, you know, one of the reasons... I'm a big fan of pulling the rug out from underneath yourself, as I call this an adventure life, because I can't go home. There is no vacation. There is no, I have to move forward because I don't have a choice. And so when you just accept, you will never feel like doing it, and you just do it anyways, that is when your life starts to shift. And eventually, it picks up momentum. I'm sure you've seen that you know, with all your projects, is that you just decided and you just started, right? Oh, absolutely. And there's... Every day that there's something I need to do that I really don't feel like doing today, but it's got to get done. And that's the difference is you just do it. And it's and you, you know, when you can make that decision from, you know, I'm going to honor who I am. You know, like For me, I always say this is going to bring me more freedom than if it does. I don't care what it is. I will do it today. And I there's lots of days where I all winter long. I laughed about what a terrible survivalist I was because I didn't feel like going to get water that day because my water's like a quarter mile away. And well, this is what life is like without water. <laughs> Or the day I didn't feel like doing, you know, whatever. And how at a survival aspect, you do not have the luxury of not doing something because you don't feel like it. Um, And that was my big lesson this winter is I got lazy, I got less vigilant, and I screwed myself over on several occasions. (laughs) Have you ever noticed, too, though, that like when you like, I really don't want to do this. So you're in that mode of like, I just don't feel like doing this. I just I'd rather do something else today, but you're like, okay, this is on the priority list. This has to get done today. Once you get started, generally it ain't bad. In fact, you usually enjoy it and you feel pretty damn good when you're done. I mean, there's some tasks that like, even when I'm doing, I'm like, this is like when I have to, you know, several times a year, clean the duck house out. I'm, I, there's no point in which I'm glad I'm doing that. But most things, the action itself is actually pretty rewarding. And I'm going to say two things to that. One is I spent about three months taking care of ducks. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) I would never want ducks. Chickens aren't as bad as ducks. And two is I know you love your ducks. I'm not a big duck fan. But um, 
Well, I was on a the it was a place where they used them for the dog, so they didn't treat them very well. I didn't like that. But um, that's the other thing. If you're going to be on farms or ranches, you have to make sure that they take care of their animals in a way that's in alignment with yours. Otherwise, it's going to be a very difficult experience. Sure. But um, but the oh, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? <laughs> oh, I asked you. I said, don't you, do you feel that normally when you don't want to do oh. something, when you actually start doing it, you end up enjoying doing it? Okay, so this is my qualifier, and um, it's an old book. It's called Change Your Brain, Change Your Life by Daniel Amen. But one of the things that was a big turnaround for me, and this is where I think you're the exception and not the rule, is that um, we all have different brain structures. And so if you can understand the way your brain functions, it will help. Like I have a raging ADHD brain. So the mundane task, I always say it takes three months for me to do something that takes someone else 15 minutes. Um, but it wasn't until I understood that about myself that I stopped beating myself up for not being productive in the way that I could see other people were being productive. So it's, you know, part of what we're talking about is also, you know, I want to qualify that and that we're all very different and we all operate in different ways. And to sort of get off our backs in terms of the judgment factor and that sometimes it does take you longer. It takes me a really long time to do very simple things, but I still do it anyways. It's just going to take me longer um, and so, you know, understanding who you are and how your brain works will go a long way of sort of taking some of the pressure off about why you may not be making some of the decisions that we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've been at this now for well past an hour, and I think we've uncovered a lot of really cool stuff. But if people want to get more uh, of what you're doing, get your book, et cetera, uh, where can they do that? Um, I'm at jillelizabeth.net. And the um, podcast is there under the pod blog and you can, you know, on iTunes, Stitcher, FM player, it's on a bunch of different places. Um, and the, you know, the workbook, I, you know, the workbook, it's so funny because none of us will do that, right? And I'm always fascinated how, um, whether you do or don't, but how we're so willing, unwilling to invest our time into ways that will actually move our life forward versus how much time we'll watch movies or TV or play video games. Um, and so, you know, my challenge is really to get you, that's why I like your podcast is because it moves me forward is I like things that move me forward. So I encourage you to, to invest your time and energy into things that will move you forward. And so that's really my goal is to keep you on your journey in a way that will get you where you want to go, not get stuck on the side of the road, pointing fingers at what's wrong with the world. Well, cool. I appreciate you being with us today. And again, I really want to reiterate to some of the younger folks that are out there trying to figure out what to do with your life um, that that if, if Jill can do this, it's certainly something you can do. And I think a lot of our young people would really gain from, from taking this on, at least for a period of time. Um, I think there's a tremendous amount to be learned, and it might be what you need to get yourself out of this kind of stuck point that, that, that we've been talking about for quite a while. Wouldn't you agree, Jill? Absolutely. But actually, I would say almost any age. When I left, I pulled into the first um, campground. It was I was so terrified. And then this little couple that was like 100 years old pulled up <laughs> next to me. And I'm like, why am I scared when it's so easy for them? So I am a big fan of what I now that I'm moving into kind of the third act in terms of, you know, you did what you thought the world should have you do in the first half of your life. Now, the second half belongs to you and invest it well. Awesome, awesome. Well, again, thanks for being with us today. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirgo today, along with Jill Elizabeth, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution is 